Well, good morning again. It is so great to have all of you with us. I know it's a cool and rainy day here in Southern California, so I hope it's beautiful wherever you may be this morning. We are so excited to come together on this day and celebrate Easter, or as I like to call it, Resurrection Sunday, because Resurrection Sunday changed everything. And that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about this morning. And, and when you think of Easter, you think of some different things. And to, to some people, it means one thing. And to other people, it kind of means another thing. So we're going to kind of talk through what Easter Sunday means to us as Christians this morning. And more importantly, that resurrection of Christ. Now, as you probably noticed, as we've gone through this series, the name of the series has been the greatest story ever told. And I did that by design. The reason that I did that is because sometimes we think of the greatest story ever told as being the birth of Jesus. And of course, that's extremely important because in order for this plan to be put into place, Jesus had to be born. But more importantly, he had to die, be buried, and be raised on that third day. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So I am really excited to have all of you with us this morning as we dive in and just really look at the crucifixion and the resurrection this morning on Easter Sunday. So thanks for being with us and let's dive in. So if we move over to a little bit of a recap of what we've been going over for the last few weeks and to kind of bring everybody up to speed on the timeline that we're working with here, it's really important that we understand where everything falls into place. So last week we talked about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. We talked about his triumphant return on Palm Sunday with, with a little bit of pomp and circumstance and we got to see Jesus kind of being that king that some people had expected when he rode into town. But we also talked about the fact that he rode in in a totally different way than what you would expect from an earthly king. He didn't actually have the pomp and circumstance that you might have expected. He came in on a donkey. He came in to shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. So we talked a little bit about that last week. And we also talked a little bit about the timeline that goes in between. So we know that Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph. We know that... Jesus cursed the fig tree and he cleansed the temple. And that's when he went into the temple and he flipped over the money tables or the money changers tables and all of that and went in and was basically upset with righteous anger about what they had done to his father's house. And then we see that really important moment where they start to plot against Jesus because they want to kill Jesus. And they wanted to kill Jesus because he was a threat to the Roman political party. He was a threat because people were starting to follow Jesus instead of following the emperor, the emperor, which is what they expected and they demanded and they required. So they started plotting against Jesus. Now, Michael read just a little while ago for us the, the account of the Last Supper, and that's that Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples in the upper room. And we know that he broke bread with them and he drank the fruit of the vine with them. And he even washed the disciples' feet. And he knew that this would be their last time together. And we know that after that, there was kind of this sham trial that took place where they really couldn't find anything against Jesus, but yet they still found him guilty. And some of the same crowd that had shouted Hosanna when he came into town were now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And we know that during this time, Peter denied Christ three times, just as Christ had said 
that he would. And when we look at scripture, when we read through the gospels, we see that Christ has predicted exactly what's going to happen. And he's told his apostles numerous times, this is what has to happen. But it still just didn't quite register. And that's a lot of what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at how Jesus was feeling. How were the apostles feeling? How was Mary feeling as we go through this story? Because we have to stop and put ourselves in these shoes to truly understand the emotions and the the physicality behind this story of Jesus and what happens in his last days. So let's dive into the scripture. We're going to pick up in John chapter 19, and we're going to pick up in verses 16 through 19. Now, of course, I would love to sit here and read the entire account of Jesus's trial and Jesus's crucifixion and Jesus's resurrection, but unfortunately we don't have that kind of time this morning. So we're going to kind of hit some of the high points. By no means are we going to hit every point, of course, but I encourage you to take the time to read the entire account, all the way from when Jesus came into Jerusalem through his resurrection, because it's so important. And you can even look at the different gospels, because as you read through the different gospels, you see that they all have a slightly different account. And some is going to add in some details that the others left out, and vice versa. Now, I hope that you guys have been looking at the emails that came out this week because we've actually been sending out a scripture reading every day during what they call Holy Week, which is the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And that's going to fill in a lot of the gaps that we may be leaving out today for you as well. Because we we gave the opportunity to some of the members of our church to actually do a different portion of that scripture reading. And we're going to be talking about the crucifixion, and that was read on Palm Sunday on Friday by three generations of the Alsop family, which I thought was really, really cool to see Tyler and Glenn and Glenn Sr. tackle that piece of scripture for us. So I hope you guys have had a chance to do that. If you haven't, no worries. You can go back into your emails and see those emails that come from the office, and you can go back and watch each day's scripture reading. And if you haven't had a chance to do that, I want to encourage you to do that over this weekend. But let's pick up in John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. It says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. It tells us, There they have crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus in the middle. Now we know that Jesus was innocent. And we know that Jesus is the only person that could have been sinless. But that didn't stop them from wanting to crucify him for their own agenda and their own reasons. So not only were they going to crucify him after they've already mocked him and spit on him and beaten him and whipped him and dressed him up in clothing to make fun of him, but now they're going to make him carry his own cross to the place where he's going to be crucified. And he did it. And he did it for us. And we don't see accounts of Jesus complaining or Jesus whining about it and saying, oh, why do I have to do this? We know that he prayed in the garden that if this cup could pass, let it. But if not, I accept it. And Jesus accepted what was to be his fate. And here he is, walking through the streets, carrying this heavy cross that is about to be his 
final place here on earth. Now, we know that as we follow this story along, Pilate makes a sign that's going to hang above Jesus that says, Jesus, the King of the Jews. He did this to mock Jesus because the Jews had claimed that he was the King and he was the Messiah. This wasn't done out of respect. It was done to mock him. Because when they, when they crucified people in this time and in this place, it was a very public thing. They did this in a place where everybody would see it. It wasn't like this was something they did off to a side somewhere and it was a private thing. This was a public thing. Because they wanted to not only crucify these men, but they wanted to shame them and they wanted to embarrass them. So Jesus is carrying his cross to the place called the skull. Now, we know as we follow this story forward that they nailed Jesus to this cross. They pierced his hands. They pierced his feet. And they nailed him to a cross. Crucifixion is one of the most painful forms of death imaginable. Jesus endured that for me and for you and for the person sitting next to you and for the person across the street from you and wherever they may be. He did it. So they nailed our Lord and Savior to a cross. They literally drove spikes through his hands and through his feet and hung him up on a cross to die for our sins or in their case, to fulfill their political agenda, which was to get rid of this guy so that people would stop following him and follow the emperor. As we follow this along, and we're going to jump ahead a little bit to verse 28. And in John 19, verse 28, it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled... Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. He had to do this to fulfill the prophecies from the Old Testament that had talked about the fact that Jesus would come to die for our sins. And he did it willingly. He did it for you and he did it for me. At this point, Jesus has been through a lot. Our Savior, our Lord and Savior, the one perfect sinless man was betrayed by a close friend. He was betrayed by Judas, who had been a follower of Jesus for a small sum of money. He was betrayed by someone who should have been family to him, someone he should have been able to trust beyond anyone else. He was mocked. Up until the very end, he was mocked with a sign over his head. 
He was cursed at. He was spit upon. He was whipped and beaten. When you look into this story a little bit deeper and you read some of the background and some of the history of this story, when they whipped Jesus, they would have used a whip that had multiple strands on it. And what they would do is they would put broken pieces of clay or broken pieces of pottery intertwined within this whip so that it would give even more of a sting and be even more damaging. But how fitting that he took those broken pieces for us. He took our broken pieces for us. We know that he was nailed to a cross. We know that his side was pierced. And we know that the nails are not what held Jesus on that cross. We see the amazing things that Jesus did throughout his time here on earth. He could have stopped this if he had wanted to. He could have disappeared when they came to arrest him, but he didn't. He could have stopped them from whipping and beating him, but he didn't. He could have stopped them from putting him on the cross, but he didn't. Because he's following his Father's will and because of his great love for us. Jesus died on the cross because of love. And he died on the cross at a time that most people didn't even believe in him. When people saw him doing miracles, they would say things like, oh, he must be possessed by a demon. They didn't believe in him, but he still was willing to die for you and for me. So let's think about his apostles, and these are his followers, right? As Michael said earlier, these are his followers who weren't just friends. They had become like family. These are the people that he spent night and day with. These are the people that he had taught the good news that were to go on and fulfill his mission when he left the earth. And he had told them three times at this point what had to happen. But it just didn't sink into them that this was God's plan and this had to happen to fulfill the prophecy. Because he had warned them three times. Hey, I'm going to be betrayed and die. But it didn't sink in. So let's think about how the apostles must have felt. We know how Christ felt, right? He had been shamed. He had been mocked. Our Savior went through a lot of the same things that you and I had to go through and have to go through. But here's the beauty part. He understands our pain because he's been in pain. When we think somebody betrayed us and we're feeling all hurt and down, all we have to do is think back to Jesus, who was betrayed by one of his closest followers. He understands our pain. He understands our weakness. He understands our vulnerabilities. He gets it because he's been through it. So he can understand and he can relate. So when we cry out to him, he gets it. He understands. But let's look at how the apostles felt as well. They were heartbroken. They were heartbroken. This person they've been following around for years. And they loved just died. And just like when anybody who's close to you passes away, it's a hard thing to deal with. And the apostles no doubt were feeling that exact same thing. They were also confused because they still didn't get it. They still didn't get that this had to happen as part of the plan, even though they'd been told over and over. They didn't get it. So they're confused. Wait a minute. I thought he was going to come back and establish his kingdom here, and now he's dead. They wondered what to do next. 
When we read the accounts of Jesus on the cross, we find out that most of his apostles, by the time he actually died, had already left. They had already gone away. They had already gone their separate ways. They hadn't stuck around till the very end, with the exception of a very few. And we know, because we see this a little bit later on in the story, that they had gone back to their old lives. They went back to fishing. Peter went back to his boat and started fishing again. Jesus had just died, and they basically just said, well, I guess it's over. I'm going to go back to my old life, and I'm going to go back to fishing. Instead of realizing that this was part of the plan and that Jesus was coming back to do exactly what he said he would do. And we do that same thing sometimes. When we feel like Jesus isn't there and he's not doing the things that we want him to do in the timeline that we want him to do it, what do we do? We turn our backs and we go back to our old life. But that's not what Jesus teaches us and that's not what Jesus wants us to do and that's not what Jesus wanted the disciples and the apostles to do. But that's exactly what they did as they went back to doing their own thing. So let's pick up in verse 38. We're still in John chapter 19, but we're going to jump ahead to verse 38. We know at this point that Jesus has has died on the cross, and we know that they were getting ready to have this big celebration, and Pilate didn't want the bodies on on the crosses during the celebration. So he had sent them out to break the legs of the other two men, and when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, and instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side. And we know that blood and water spilled out. But that again fulfills the prophecy from the Old Testament that not a bone would be broken. So now Jesus has died, and along comes another believer named Joseph. And the scripture tells us later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he, carried, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. Now, Nicodemus is an interesting story, right? Because Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus in the night because he didn't want people to know he was coming to Jesus. But the interesting thing about the story of Nicodemus is, is we only see that story in the book of John of where he came to Christ at night. But now Nicodemus is playing a central role in helping Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body of Jesus. So we know that he took him out to this place, to a brand new tomb, and this is where Jesus is going to be laid to rest. So if we pick up in verse 40 and 41... It says, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with their spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So this may have been something like what the tomb looked like. Probably not exactly like this. But but we know that he was placed into the stone, We know that he was laid there in the linen with the spices, as was the Jewish custom, because Jesus, after all, was Jewish. So they buried him according to custom. And then they rolled this giant stone in front of the tomb. And it was guarded and it was sealed. Because 
Pilate was afraid that Jesus' followers would come and take the body. So what they did is they, they, they sealed this tomb so that nobody would be able to get into it to take Jesus' body and or Jesus couldn't get out, or so they thought. So it was guarded, it was sealed, and it was impossible to open. But we know that with God, all things are possible. So let's continue with our story in John chapter 20 now starting in verses 1 and 2. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Again, let's, let's think about how they must have been feeling at this time. Mary comes back early in the morning and finds that the tomb is empty. Jesus is gone again. Now keep in mind, at this point, he has not appeared to her. She thinks he's gone. So she's upset. And she shares this with Simon Peter and the other disciples. That, hey, I went to the tomb. He's not there. Mary looked into the empty tomb and sees a couple of angels. So now we're starting to piece things together, right? That the angels had opened the tomb because we know at this point, right, that something big is about to happen. So Mary looks in and sees the two angels, which was probably, again, a bit of an eye-opening experience for her too because she doesn't really know at this point what's going on. So if we pick up in verse 15 and 16, it says... He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now again, woman in this time was not a derogatory term. And these are the words in red. This is Jesus appearing to Mary. And he says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Now, I love this part. This is probably my favorite part of the story in the account of John, where it says, thinking he was the gardener, he said. So you tell me there's no humor in the Bible. I think there's a lot of humor in the Bible. But I love this part that she doesn't even glance. She just assumes he is the gardener. So she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. So she's basically saying, Look, gardener, just tell me what you did with the body so that I can go get my Lord and Savior. Because she thinks again that the body has been stolen. Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned away from him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Again, the emotions that Mary has gone through during this time, right? She, she, she was one of the few that stuck around until the crucifixion, and then she is still coming to the tomb on that Sunday morning to find an empty tomb, and now she sees Jesus for the first time since his death. And what an important role she plays, because she's the first person that Jesus appears to after he has fulfilled the prophecy and been resurrected just like we knew he would. So let's go ahead and pick up John chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father 
and your father, to my God and your God. And it says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. What an important role that she played. Not only did she get to be the first person to see Jesus, but she also got to carry that message back to the other disciples. Now, I don't know this, and it's not in the Bible, but I'll bet that's probably the fastest she has ever run from the time that she saw Jesus until the time that she got back to where the disciples were to tell them what she had just heard and that Jesus was back. The elation she must have felt. And how do you think the apostles were feeling when she gets back to them and and blows their mind and says, hey, guess what? He's back. How awesome that must have been. Because again, they were heartbroken and they were in despair because they thought it was over and they thought Jesus had left them. But now he's back. That must have been just an overwhelming moment. And we know that some of them still didn't get it. And some of them still didn't believe it, right? Because if we were to read farther and take the story on a little bit farther, we know that that they needed to touch his hands and they needed more proof, so to speak, that it was really Jesus in the room with them. So this story is not just the greatest story ever told, but it's the greatest love story ever told. Because see, God loved us enough to send his only son down to walk this earth as a man. He didn't have to do that. But he knew that if he wanted to restore that gap between God and man, that he had to do something, and he had to do something big, and that's exactly what he did. But he didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he loves us so much. He loves us that much that he sent Jesus and Jesus did what he had to do for you and for me because he loved us it's all about love see the bible is a love story right it's a love story it's all about god's love for people and people's love for him and hopefully everyone's love for Jesus and Jesus's love for us Now, we know that's not the case because we know even today some people still don't believe in him. But it's a love story. And this story of the death and the burial and the resurrection that had to take place is a love story. We didn't earn it. We certainly didn't deserve it. Because again, most of the people didn't even believe in Jesus. And even the apostles, once he went to the cross, were like, well, I guess it's over. But he loved us enough to suffer and to die for our sins. Because if he didn't, then we wouldn't have that chance of being right with God and have that chance of spending an eternity in heaven. Because I firmly believe that Jesus wants everyone to go to heaven. He can't force it, but that's what he wants. He doesn't want to see anyone perish. He wants to see us all worshiping together for eternity. So this story is really a story of hope. And that's, if you were to ask me the question, what does Easter mean to you? Easter means hope. Because without this act that Jesus carried out for us, we would not have that hope of spending eternity in heaven. We'd have no hope. 
It says, because he suffered, he was crucified, he rose on the third day, we have hope of an eternal life. It's a story of hope. Because without that, there is no hope. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. So without him coming to earth and fulfilling that prophecy, we'd be hopeless and we'd be afraid. Can you imagine the fear that we would have of death if it wasn't for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? We'd be terrified because we wouldn't have that chance of eternal life if it wasn't for Jesus and the hope that we have by him resurrecting. And we know that he then ascended to heaven and he now sits on the right hand of God to make intercession for us. And how wonderful that we have a Savior who not only loves us, but has been through the things that we go through. Because he walked the earth as a man. He knows what we're going through. Look at what he went through on his last days. I can almost guarantee you it's way worse than anything that we're going to walk through. Even though we may feel like it's different. He understands and he's there to make intercession for us. And we know that he had to ascend to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit down to us. And that we get that gift of the Holy Spirit through baptism. So Jesus is still with us today. He's inside us with that gift of the Holy Spirit that guides us and points us in the right direction and hopefully always points us back to Jesus, even in our most difficult times. Make Easter personal. And this is my challenge to you as, as we come to a close in just a few minutes. Make Easter personal. Think about what Jesus did for you and for me. Think about how Jesus felt. Think about when Jesus was on that cross that he was thinking of you and me and all of us because he loves us that much. And think of the hope that you personally have because of this amazing sacrifice that was made on our behalf. He was thinking of you when he went to the cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for this, this day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the hope that you've given us through this amazing sacrifice. Heavenly Father, just continue to be with us and continue to help us in difficult times to always look to you and to remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please join us in another song? And I'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Thanks. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, heroes and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, heroes and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. 
Well, church family, thank you so much for joining us on this Easter Sunday morning. And I want to just encourage you again to take some time to really think about what Easter truly means to you and to me, and really remember the reason that we celebrate Easter. So as you're spending time today with your family, I hope you have a wonderful day and you have a wonderful Easter meal and just continue to be safe out there. Church family, we love you and we miss you. And let's close out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for everyone that is watching this service here today. We pray for all of our friends and family, wherever they may be. We pray that you'll continue to keep them safe, that you'll continue to bless them, and that you'll continue to always remind them of the hope that we find that only comes from you. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for blessing us. We thank you for loving us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for watching. I hope you have a wonderful day. Because you're amazing, God. You're amazing, God. You can bear the weight of every heavy heart. You can heal the pain. You can clean the stain. You can turn our tears into songs of praise. You're amazing, God. Beauty rises from the ashes. Sorrow turns to gladness when our God is near. You speak light into our darkness. You heal the brokenhearted. You wipe away our tears. From the north and south, we are crying out. There is hope in Jesus' name. Cause you're amazing God. You're amazing God. You can bear the weight of every heavy heart. You can heal the pain. You can clean the stain. You can turn our tears into songs of praise. You're amazing God. Amazing God. Songs of praise around us. Songs of praise around us. Hear it growing louder. We are growing louder. Songs of praise around us. Songs of praise around us. Hear it growing louder. We are growing louder. Cause you're amazing God. You're amazing God. You can bear the weight of every heavy heart. You can heal the pain, you can clean the stain, you can turn our tears into songs of praise. You're amazing God.